0: our experience we feel arid spiritually and so we pray that you would uh, come now and meet with us that you would send the Holy Spirit that you would uh, open our eyes that we would see uh, more of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory and majesty and uh, worship him and be refreshed be renewed be helped by your word today we ask it in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Well, Revelation is uh, the last book in the Bible, and uh, I often think that seems quite appropriate because I think it is often the last book uh, we want to turn to um, as Christians. It is a book that can um, scare us. Lots of weird and wonderful interpretations have been written about it, um, so much so that the author GK Chesterton once said this, though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Um, And um, I think in many ways that is true. And this is a book that we find maybe a bit daunting. And when I was at seminary and uh, my head was full of church history and theology and struggling to... um, uh, even begin to understand Greek. Uh, I used to love walking down from the mound to visit the, the Scottish National Gallery and wandering around that gallery, even for about 15 minutes, and um, soaking in the images and the paintings. Well, it was a bit like a kind of oasis experience after all that study. And this book is a lot. Like that. I think we often think of Revelation as as a kind of puzzle book, Uh, but lots of the things we read in this book are things that we already know, that we've been told elsewhere in Scripture. And what we get in this book is not so much uh, new information, but a new experience, truth that's here to capture our imagination. Um, It's not so much a puzzle book, but a picture book. Uh, The book of Revelation is is noisy, and it's colorful. It kind of assaults our senses. And as we read it, we uh, see stunning portraits of Jesus. And though it's full of heavenly visions, Revelation was written to people in very difficult, earthy, messy situations. John, who received it, was imprisoned on Patmos, and the believers that he shared this vision with, they were ordinary. They were compromised. And they were being persecuted. And they were people who felt under pressure. And in other words, they were people a lot like some of us, or all of us, really. And Revelation was written to help Christians like that, Christians like us. Now, before we dive into chapter 5, and I think diving in is a good uh, way of thinking of uh, coming to Revelation. It's like a big swimming pool, isn't it? Diving into this incredible book. Let me say um, a word about uh, chapter 4, the the chapter before chapter 5. Chapter 4 is the stage for the drama that unfolds in chapter 5. And and the dominant image in chapter 4 is of a throne. John is reminded that despite all the difficulties in our lives, they're not governed by fate, and they're not governed by blind, pitiless indifference. No, there is a throne, and someone is sitting on it. And he's separated from John by a sea of glass. Day and night, a host of creatures offer The main reason they do so is because he is the creator. Maybe you can see that at the end of chapter 4. But chapter 5 has a different feel, it has a different focus. And as we watch this drama unfold on this great stage, I think the first thing God wants us to do, this is my first heading, is feel the tension, feel the tension the tension. John looks at the beginning of chapter 5, and he sees a scroll in the right hand of the one who is on the throne. This, this document is packed with words. There's uh, no double spacing. There's no room for any more information. No, everything God wants to say is in this scroll. This great scroll is the Lamb's book of life. It is God's book of destiny. It contains all of God's plans and God's purposes, his decrees, everything God has done, everything God will do. As someone has said, it contains your story and my story. It's more important than, than any constitution, any will. This is God's book, his scroll. And throughout the Old Testament, lots of references are made to this book, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, or some of those who speak of it. But now, here, when it finally appears, when John finally sees it, there is a problem, isn't there? It is locked up, sealed, not just once, but seven times. John sees and then hears something else. He sees a mighty angel. He proclaims in a loud voice, Who is worthy to. Open the scroll. Is there anyone out there who can do this? Great search takes place. But no one in heaven or on earth or or even under the earth can be found. The task is so great. John's search is more important than uh, our longing for maybe a, a, a political leader of some kind, a president, a military leader. And the fact that it seems to end in failure, it leaves John devastated. He weeps, verse 4. He weeps loudly. And I wonder when you last saw someone do that. I wonder when you did that. And though he gets an answer, I find John's tears here. I find them uh, a rebuke. To my cold, my indifferent heart. God's plans seem to, to hang in the balance, and He's in tears. He's not indifferent or preoccupied with all of this. What about me? How much do I care about God's cause, God's honor? How does the Lord's Prayer put it? Your kingdom come. They're three little words, aren't they? But they're so hard to say. You and I, we can be so concerned about our little kingdoms, our needs, our concerns. But Christians throughout history have prayed that prayer, your kingdom come, to remember what really matters. What do you and I long for? What do we care about? So many things, lots of them good. But Jesus says, seek first my kingdom. And John is a man who did just that. Feel the tension. Sam and Duncan, do you want me to switch to this microphone just in case? Is that better? Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Just so we don't have any more, everyone on feeling the tension about my microphone. Okay. Let me turn it off. So feel the tension. Second, see the paradox. If the first few verses, they expose our need. Verses 5 to 10, they give God's answer. One of the elders says to John, weep no more. And I think in so many ways, that little phrase, it takes us right to the heart of the gospel because our world is full of tears it is full of wrong full of evil full of suffering full of so much that makes you and I cry men and women have been weeping since Genesis 3 and the Bible is not some kind of dry book it is a tear-soaked book and you and I we cry for all sorts of reasons don't we we cry when we suffer we cry when we're sick We cry when we sin. We cry when someone we love behaves in a way that that we cannot change. And some of us may have even had the experience of, of finding ourselves crying without any real way of explaining why. But there is someone who can wipe all our tears away. Tears are not going to have the final say in human history. I wonder if you can remember John chapter 20. Do you remember what Jesus said to Mary Magdalene? Woman, why are you weeping? And look at how this same Jesus is, is described in John's vision. He's a lion. He's strong. He's powerful. Notice his history. He doesn't appear from nowhere. No, he's from judah he's connected to david israel's greatest king and yet he seems so much greater than david he's not so much a shoot from him he's the root he's the source he's a great king he's one who has conquered and i think all this makes what john says next even more astonishing now you and I, if we 've read this chapter before, and we know what's coming. We know what John is about to see. Imagine hearing all of this for the very first time. Imagine living under the threat of, of persecution in the Roman Empire. John turns from hearing of a lion and thinking of a mane, a uh, teeth, a uh, roaring. And what does he see? He sees a lamb. John sees. A little lamb and he sees that little lamb standing as though it had been slain it's a a graphic awful picture we could put it like this the gap between his expectation and the reality is huge and we often um, link countries with animals don't we so we what do we have the Russian bear uh, the American eagle and they're all always like really impressive animals. But look at God's choice. A lion who is a lamb. And in heaven, in the, in the seat of power in the universe, the one honored is one who became the least. The one who's honored is the one who took the lowest place. In heaven, the one who's lifted up is the one who made a great descent down into our world right into our mess right into our sin and there's a, a lovely illustration of this kind of idea in the lord of the rings and at the end of the story as the the four hobbits frodo sam mary and pippin the little guys in the story who've, who've done so much to save middle earth as they meet King Aragorn and Queen Arwen as they prepare to bow before them Aragorn stops them and he says no friends you bow to no one so great is their achievement of these four little guys that he and she and a huge multitude bow the knee to them And this happens to the Lamb. He takes the scroll, he receives the praise, he hears the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. As you hear that, uh, notice the reach of the Lamb's blood. It covers those from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Four different ways of, of kind of saying the same thing. That the, the, uh, speaking of the variety of the Lamb's people. Wherever you come from, you can be saved by this Lamb. And wherever you come from, you need to be saved by this Lamb. Uh, Today, you and I, we live in a very um, sanitized age. I think that was true uh, before COVID, wasn't it? And we're a long way from from the Old Testament with its uh, blood and sacrifice. And in one sense, that's good, isn't it? But the cleanliness of our surroundings, well, that can easily rub off on us. And many of us live lives that look kind of tidy. But the truth is that all of us here today, we need to be drenched in Christ's blood. If we have any hope of standing in the presence of God, we need him to wash us clean. Without the shedding of his blood, there is no forgiveness. And some of the old hymns, they put it the best. There is a fountain. Do you know these words? Filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Polly Toynbee is a a prominent atheist. Um, She writes for The Guardian. She's often on uh, television. Listen to this Of all the elements of Christianity, The most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Did we ask him to? Now, how does that quote make you feel? Does it make you feel angry? Well, friends, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I think that is probably what we would think. Because the cross is humbling. The cross is offensive, deeply offensive. It is counterintuitive. Sometimes you and I forget that our sin is so ugly, so deep, the one that we've sinned against is so great that, that we deserve the death penalty. It's very easy for us to think that we are basically good people with just a few flaws. And maybe with enough education or effort we can reach utopia. But the Bible just bursts that bubble. The Bible says that God is holy. That he Hate sin, that his justice demanded a price for it, and that that price was death, and that you and I have absolutely no access to God apart from Jesus. This is what God has given us this morning. God has given us a lion who is also a lamb. And the Christian life is full of this kind of of irony, of of paradox. In the Christian life, it is always the weak things of the world that shame the strong. In the Christian life, um, weakness is strength. Giving beats receiving. And losing is gain. There's an old prayer that captures it. Listen to this. Lord, high and holy meek and lowly, let me learn that the way up is the way down, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that the valley is the place of vision. That's what it feels like to belong to Jesus. And this morning, if you are wading through misery, then remember that you have a lion who is also a lamb. You have one on your side who is all-powerful and yet knows exactly what it's like to feel weak. That is the kind of king that you can take your sorrows to, your sins to one who understands, one who can sympathize, and yet one whose exaltation in this passage shouts out to us that suffering and tears and sin will never be the end for God's people. Feel the tension, see the paradox. Lastly, join the praise, join the praise. Then I looked, John writes, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In the world that John lived, the emperor was was all powerful and and in the 20th century, um, there were many occasions when one man held a whole nation spellbound. And today, millions of people in our world follow celebrities uh, that they've never met. We can be obsessed with people like that. And yet here, John sees the whole of creation worshipping not a tyrant, and uh, not some narcissistic megalomaniac, but Jesus and the one who is praised is the unselfish one the one who is lifted up here is the one who who was lifted up on a cross of course when that happened um, in the gospels very few people noticed didn't they in 2007 um, during the the morning rush hour in dc the world famous violinist joshua bell he he stood in the entrance of a washington uh, metro station and he played his violin for 45 minutes uh, joshua bell he regularly uh, fills concert halls worldwide and he was playing a stradivarius which i think is a pretty good violin is that right yeah It was made in 1713. It was worth three and a half million dollars. And that morning he collected 32 dollars from the few passers-by who stopped. Most of the commuters didn't even notice him. Too busy with the rush to work, their coffee, the newspaper, whatever it was. And I think if you and I had seen the cross... Well, we would have probably done exactly the same. But in Revelation 5, in this chapter, we cannot miss the the significance. Jesus is right in the spotlight. Jesus is, is seated at the Father's right hand. All the attention, all the focus is on him. And this morning, you and I, we are called to lift our voices and honor him this is where history is going the worship of the lamb and no leader no disaster none of our suffering none of our sin can stop this from happening this is the great destiny that you and I are heading for as God's people Last week, I said that uh, one of my favorite passages um, said this at the evening service is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. And in that, that passage, after describing the plans that God has made before the foundation of the world, Peter says that these are things into which angels long to look. And it's a stunning thought, isn't it? The beings who live in the very presence of God who worship him night and day they are captivated by something they are captivated by the cross of Christ the fact that God the son stooped down to rescue rebels that is something that astounds them and heaven will never get over the cross I wonder have we? Do we need to come back to the foot of the cross this morning? Or do we need to come to it for the very first time? What are we worshipping? Who are we worshipping this morning? What is our focus on? Where is our gaze? Do we need to say, Lord Jesus, receive me, remember me, forgive me? Maybe if you or to do that for the first time today. Maybe you're tempted to think, I can't do that. Maybe you think I've messed up. Maybe you think I'm too sinful. But what was Jesus' posture when he died? His arms were wide open, weren't they? His arms were wide open and he has promised that all who come to him he will never, ever let go. Well, I mentioned paintings I'm at the start of the sermon, and a painting by the 16th-century artist Matthias Grünewald that sums up this text. It shows John the Baptist standing at the cross, with one hand raised and a finger pointing to Jesus. And if Christ's posture is arms wide open to us this morning, this is our posture, isn't it? Because Jesus, he is the one we point to. He is our only hope. And there can be no limit to the honor that he receives. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that today Jesus, our King, is exalted at your right hand, that all authority has been given to the one who was slain. And so this morning we bow to him, we look to him, we love him, we wait for him, and we pray all this for his name's sake. Amen. well before we come to uh, the lord's table this morning we're going to sing and uh, this is a song that focuses again our attention on jesus death beneath the cross of jesus i find a place to stand and wonder at such mercy that calls me as i am let's stand and praise god together